welcome to the Thriving Advisor Show. I'm Ike Ikoku, and together with Nina Venturella, we are co-founders of the Cochinaire Institute and the Seven Figure Mentor Program. We help executives create successful transitions out of corporate life without jeopardizing their current employment and without risk to their family, finances, or future. We launch business consulting practices for our clients and use that as a vehicle to establish their personal brand, their thought leadership, and to monetize their purpose, passion, wisdom, expertise, and experience. This helps them address the problem of how to design a successful transition out of corporate life and into doing something adventurous and fulfilling that allows them to have the kind of impact, influence, and income they desire in this next chapter of their life. We believe that executives who have been thriving in the boardroom with their responsibilities to their current employer can also thrive outside of the boardroom in their post-corporate life. We know that you have relevant experience, expertise, as well as a unique message and or a passion project that can positively impact the world. Stick around to the end of the show and we'll reveal how you can be our next guest on one of the fastest growing daily inspirational podcasts on the planet in the next 15 to 20 minutes. All right, well, let's get into today's show. Well, hey there, it's Ike Ikoku over at the Thriving Advisors podcast, where we spotlight CEOs who are thriving not only in the boardroom, but even outside of the boardroom. And today we've got a very special guest, Stephen Hoffman of Founders Space. He has a very, very rich background. I dare not go into the depth of all what he's done, uh, but Stephen, welcome to the show. Fantastic to be here, Ike. So good to have you, buddy. Uh, Why don't we just do this? Give us, you know, the quick 30 to 60 second roll on just your background. uh, And let's start there, if you don't mind. Sure. I started out as an entrepreneur. I've done two bootstrap companies, three venture funded companies. I went on to launch Founderspace, which is one of the world's leading global startup incubators and accelerators. We're in 22 countries right now. And I'm also the author of three books. Make Elephants Fly, which is all about how startups get their big ideas off the ground. Yeah. Surviving a startup, which is basically how do you survive when sure. most startups fail? And the five forces, which goes in depth on how technology is changing humanity and our society, and we are merging with our machines. Wow. That's really, really rich. Tell me a little bit about your background. I mean, I, I've seen some of your, you know, your bachelor's and your master's degree, but I want to go back to the childlike version of Stephen. What do you see as like attributes or things that you look back on now and you go, now I understand why I was so curious about this or how all of those building blocks led to what you've done, you know, with what Founders Square right now. So uh, with Founders Space, basically it all came out of my desire to build things so ever and create things so i really i've been an entrepreneur my entire life i relate to entrepreneurs i'm passionate about it you can probably tell yeah but it came down when i was a kid i literally i would 
I was into games. So my nickname in Silicon Valley is Captain Hoff. It's my gamer handle. But as a kid, <laughs> I was creating games right and left. I wasn't just buying them. I would actually go to the game store. I didn't have enough money. And I would look at all the different games, read yeah. the boxes, and go home and invent the game I thought it was. So I invented over 100 games, different types of games, role-playing games, board games, you name it, and play-tested them on all my friends. That was my passion. And then I started programming computer games after that. Yeah. I also, at the same time, was making movies. So I made animated films, live action films, all these short films. Some of them weren't even that short. They were close to an hour. And I was constantly like every month producing new productions of these movies with all my friends as the actors. And that creativity, that drive stuck with me. So when, when I went out into the real world, you know, I went, got an engineering degree because my father was like, you got to study engineering. Computers are the future. So I did it. I graduated, but then I followed my passion. I went to school in filmmaking. After I graduated with a master's degree in film and television from USC, I worked my way up the ladder in Hollywood, became a television development executive. And then I met the founder of Sega. And at that time, wow. they just surpassed. Most of the millennials probably don't even recognize that term Sega today. Well, they, know, right? <laughs> they might know Sonic the Hedgehog. Like <laughs> Sonic survives. And so Sega, you know, at that time, Sega had just surpassed Nintendo as the number one video game company right. in the world. I met the chairman. He said, we want to hire somebody from Hollywood to come to our Japanese headquarters and come up with new ideas. So I, I took the opportunity, went to Japan. Uh, did that we worked on this huge project actually with none other than michael jackson he was really he came, he came to our offices in japan we got to meet him we were collaborating it was this big theme ride that sega wow. was building for las vegas and then i uh decided to start my own game company and that Just was cur really out of curiosity was michael being pulled in as like a special consultant like what was his role with you guys? oh he was the star of the show like really? this was this was like in Disneyland, they have the Star Wars ride. Remember the old one where you yep. sit there? He was the, the star of this kind of simulation ride where you're going through space and he okay. was doing his, Michael Jackson was doing his thing and it was, <laughs> it was crazy. It was fun. That is so wild. That is so wild. Yeah. So I worked on that project. I worked on a bunch of other virtual fighter, virtual racer. I don't even these. know if I could call what you do work. It sounds like so much fun. Man. <laughs> That's why I did it because, you know, it was my passion. I was combining yeah. actually kind of filmmaking and games. And then I kept doing that. I started my own game company. I launched some venture funded companies at the intersection of entertainment sure. and technology. And I just kept going. So I want to talk a little bit about the company. So when you think about the industry, the space that you guys are in, what do you see as like the biggest problem you guys are solving today for your clients? So founder space, our clients tend to be, well, we have different types of clients actually. So okay. most of them are entrepreneurs at an early stage. So either they're just beginning and they're usually in that case, we're mm -hmm. educating them. We're really helping them because we can't invest in them. They're too early. Sure. When they get further along, they go into our acceleration programs. And that's where we really invest time, money, resources into these companies. Mm -hmm. They are our clients. So when we work with startups, we are always thinking about what they need. Like I've been an entrepreneur. Every All our instructors that we hire have been entrepreneurs. Uh, so they understand, you know, what it is to launch one of these companies. 
And we have different segments. So we have entrepreneurs in there who just want to learn. And they, they might run a family business, they might run a small business, a consulting business, but they just come to us to learn as much as they can. And that's more educational. If we fund them, they have to be high growth. So we can't fund somebody who's going to linear growth, slow growth. We have to fund a company that's going to be exponential growth. And the reason is because it's really hard to get your money out of a company that isn't growing exponentially. They, sure. There's usually no clear exit, like no acquisition, no IPO. If they can't achieve one of those, you're not going to get the multiples back on your money if you get yeah. any money at all to justify the risk for you know investing in a startup is highly risky. So we segment them off into the different segments. And when we engage with them, our goal is to, we through the years have really found out what entrepreneurs need. Like, and I will tell you, different entrepreneurs need different things. So if they're a high growth company, usually their number one priority is raising capital. Yeah. And we will, we will laser focus on that. Although a lot of times they have problems with their business and they don't come to us for that, but that's actually a lot of times where we can offer them the greatest value because we see so many companies, so many of them taking the wrong direction, going, you know, uh, making mistakes that we've seen other companies make and mm -hmm. we can steer them away from that or we can tell them to do you know ask them the right questions like to get them to really engage with their customers to make sure their business model is sound that's awesome there are so many uh accelerators popping up all over the country i was having a conversation with a buddy of mine who just got accepted recently into the goldman sachs Business, business accelerator. And he talked to me a little bit about their intake process and how rigorous it was and how he strategically prepared for that role uh, to get, you know, one of 30, I think, out of hundreds uh, who got to that qualifying stage, who got accepted. What would you say is the distinguishing feature, the value proposition? What, what separates you guys from the competition out there? So when we started over a decade ago, it wasn't nearly as competitive. We were one of, you know, a handful of top accelerators in Silicon Valley. So there's Y Combinator, they're well-known, 500 startups, a few others. Sure. What we did was we approached the market very differently. So we, I always believe that when you launch a business, it doesn't matter if you're a consulting business or a venture fundable business, you know, big scalable business, it's the same thing. You have to look, if you want to be successful, you have to look for pockets of pent-up demand, mm. demand that isn't being met by the other guys out there. Because if you don't, then you're just competing with them on price. Like, you know, you're all, you're basically offering the same thing and competing on price, yeah. which is a bad way to go. Like what you want to do is separate yourself. It also helps you build a brand that sure. you can actually scale. So when we went out there, we were like, where is the demand? So they're already other accelerators out here doing a great job, mm -hmm. but what could we do that's different? And then we noticed a trend. So, oh, you know, over a decade ago, Silicon Valley was the new hot thing. Like everybody was like, you got it from all over the world. Entrepreneurs were coming, governments were coming, corporations were coming to Silicon Valley to learn the Silicon Valley magic. Mm -hmm. So we decided to set founder space up as the gateway to Silicon Valley for people coming from the outside. It could be from other parts of the US or Canada, but also mostly from all these other countries, you know, Asia and Europe, all around the world, Africa, all these places. And we helped entrepreneurs land in Silicon Valley and get going really fast. And that meant we had to change our product. So our product and service. So 
The other accelerators were offering one, uh, you know, they would usually give you uh, run a course or do sessions one day or one night a week Mm -hmm. for three to six months. But these entrepreneurs coming over, a lot of them from overseas, they didn't have the money to stay three or six months. And they didn't even know if their business was really right for Silicon Valley. So they wanted to compress that time. So we saw that opportunity of all these entrepreneurs coming in who wanted, said, can you do it in two or three weeks? What they're doing in three to six months, like in so that I can figure out if my business will go in Silicon Valley in a very short time. So that's what we did. We ran these super hyper compressed programs that ran all day, like super long days. And instead of having them run all around Silicon Valley, we brought Silicon Valley into them. We brought in all the mentors. We brought in the investors. We brought in, you know, different legal experts to help them set up their company in the U.S. and really educate them on everything they needed to do. And then at the end of that time, they could either stay longer if they saw it was promising and they had the funds to do so, or they could return to their country and then come back later if if they felt it was a good fit. That was the problem we were solving for them. And it worked like a charm. Like it worked so well that our brand kind of exploded, uh, especially overseas. And we started to get all these invites from countries all around the world. And a lot of them, we said, well, it's really expensive for governments. Governments were funding a lot of this for you to fund 10 entrepreneurs to come to Silicon Valley. Why don't you just have fly one of our instructors to your country? We can run a program there for a couple of weeks and then we can help you pick the, the startups that are really the best fit to launch in Silicon Valley. So that's how we grew our business. And uh, today, like we have uh, partners all over the world, like we work with other incubators, we work with different governments like South Korea and Taiwan. We even have our own founder space incubators all across China and like all the, ma- you know, Shenzhen, Nanjing, Wuhan, Xi'an, all these major cities. And um, things are great. The, the pandemic has been a little crazy for us, but but uh, we have uh, adjusted for that. And our focus is really still being the global entrepreneur the global startup accelerator. Wow. That's incredible. That, that whole compressed learning model is one that I've seen time and time again to really kind of accelerate things, building a lot of efficiency. So uh, it's interesting. You guys decided to adopt that model. You've got a lot of items that probably are like highlights on your resume in terms of things that you've done and accomplished. What do you consider to be your greatest accomplishment thus far in life? So I have different types of accomplishments that I consider great. So I would say a founder space, what we're running now at a global scale, and we got rated by Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazines, the number one incubator for overseas startups. That probably crowns it as one of the greatest things I've done. But in a very different way, my very first startup is also the greatest thing I ever did because that was very personal. Mm. So for my first startup, I actually left Sega, the big game company in Japan, came back to Silicon Valley, which is my home turf. And I I just had the little money I'd saved because I wasn't out of college that long. And I put all that money into our first product. And I basically made that product myself. It was my baby. I wanted to make a game, ironically, that that would teach people how to be entrepreneurs. So there are all these games out there that are violent games, like that are killing shooting games. And I wanted to make a game that was super fun, like pure entertainment, but also people would learn something as they played it. So I made this game called Gazillionaire, where you become a gazillionaire. (laughs) And it honestly, I 
put all my love into that game. And sure. it was so quirky and it's so strange that it, it just took off. It was, we got the top PC game publisher. It went global. And even today, like on steam, if you, if you're a gamer and you go on steam, you can play it. Like it has a huge fan base. So sure. um, in a way on a very personal level, uh, I love that game. It's my baby. That's awesome. Let's take the other side of the coin. What do you see as being one of your biggest failures thus far? Ah, I have a, a lot of failures, which have been uh, educational and enlightening for me, especially working with entrepreneurs. Sure. So one of the things I did wrong, there were, my first startup was filled with road bumps. My first, not my game startup, my first game startup was super successful. And then my first venture funded startup, the time, first time I took money from outside investors yep. was absolutely a crazy experience. So we did a product, which was basically, again, at the intersection of entertainment and technology, mm -hmm. we basically built out, we basically went um, to MTV Viacom and said, we will build you a platform that will fully synchronize on air broadcasts with, with online content. So they were launching a show at the time with Amit Zappa, Frank Zappa's son, called Web Riot. It was a music trivia game show, mm -hmm. and they were putting everything behind this. And we had to win that contract because we we wanted it. Like <laughs> Our company was called Spider Dance, and we wanted to reinvent television. So we went in there, and we basically called MTV like over and over and over to get through, and they never returned our call. Like they never called us back, but my partner spoke at CES, the big conference mm -hmm. about what we wanted to do. And after she spoke, the vice president of MTV came running up and go, that's the product we want. So that launched our company. We got 350K in the bank. We built out this product. Now, along the way, we wound up signing up every, almost every major TV network. We had NBC, Warner Brothers, Turner Broadcasting, A&E, History Channel, Game Show Network, you almost name it. Almost a monopoly were, then. <laughs> well, they were, we were the number one in providing the synchronized content between the web and TV frame. Actor. Yeah. And then we got this buyout offer. You want to know my biggest mistake. Yeah. We got this buyout offer from a public company. And to me, it seemed pretty good. And my gut said, take it. However, our venture, it was my first venture funded company and our venture capitalists were adamant. They were like, do not take that offer. Like we are, we are the market leader. We should ride this out. Yeah. We can get a much higher valuation down the road. So we turned down the buyout offer. Months later, the dot-com bubble burst. Wow. dot-com bubble burst. Literally every one of our customers, all these broadcast networks, these big yeah. entertainment companies, they started because it was the early days of internet. They started mm -hmm. slashing their internet budgets. And the first thing to go was this experimental yeah. interactive TV <laughs> product. They were just like, look, like I went into Scott Sassa, the president of NBC, and he was like, we love what you're doing for our show, The Weakest Link. It's sure. like fantastic, but we're not going to pay you. You can run the show and you, and if you can make any money selling the ads, go for it. Well, there was no ad market at the time, especially like for this, it was pre-Google, like doing the, the whole AdWords thing. It was early sure. on. Literally, our revenue went from climbing, climbing, climbing to almost zero. Wow. And we, I was in a world of pain. Like I know what entrepreneurs go through when they're suffering. I didn't know how to get out of this. 
uh, you know, because we had not only taken venture funding, we'd taken debt financing on top of it, which is a really good deal until you have to pay back the money. <laughs> you know, if you, and you don't have thinking, cash flow. <laughs> yeah, if you, yeah, and you're all your cash just went and nobody will give you any money at this sure. time because you, you know, the dot com thing is imploding, the bubble yeah. is imploding. Nobody wants to put any money out there, especially in a company that's revenue has fallen off a cliff. Yeah. So we, so, Basically, I went to our landlord. I didn't want to have to go through bankruptcy court. That would just be too painful. So I went to our landlord and said, look, you know, we have another two years on our super expensive lease, but you know, we can't pay you like we're willing to move out tomorrow. If you just let us go, like if you forgive the money we owe you. And he said, get out, go. (laughs) So we cut that deal. Then I went to the company that had loaned us this money, this kind of venture bank that had loaned us the money. And they had hired an ex-Marine to squeeze every penny out of these startups that were because they were in bankruptcy because all these startups have just gone kaput in the, in the bubble bursting. So I went to him and I said, basically the same thing, you know, you're not going to, you can't squeeze blood from a stone. You can't get anything from this company, but I'll give you what we have. I will give you all our office, cool air on chair, office furniture. I'll give you our computers and I will give you the IP and just let forgive our debt and let us walk away. And I cut those deals. And so we could quietly wind down. Super painful experience, mm. but uh, something I think, you know, entrepreneurs have to go through. Most startups, like that's why I wrote my book, Surviving a Startup, because I yes. know <laughs> that you don't always survive, even when you think you're doing everything right. Yeah. I just was about to ask you, like, what are some key lessons that people can hope to expect from that book, Surviving Startup? I feel like you just gave me one of them, but why don't you share a little bit more around um, what people can expect when they dig into that book and uh, maybe the driving impetus for that as well? Okay. I tell entrepreneurs a lot of things in this book. Like it's chock full of my personal experience and the experience of all these entrepreneurs I work with, all the pitfalls we have, all the, mm-hmm. the, the mountains we have to climb and things, things we really learn along the way. One of the most important things that entrepreneurs don't recognize is that the idea you start with isn't that important. Like mm-hmm. they always think I have to have this epiphany to do this company. Like I have to have this brilliant idea. I'm like, the idea is a starting point yeah. from in honestly, The best thing you can do is instead of focusing on the idea, instead of focusing on building a product, instead of focusing on raising capital, you need to do two things. None of those other things. First thing you need to do is get surround yourself by the best, smartest people you can. Because honestly, you know, if when you discover that idea, which is the journey you're on, is to figure Mm -hmm. out what is that idea. Literally, if you have a great team around you, you can score, you can win. But if you do not, you will fumble the ball. And some Mm. other company with a better team will see what you're doing, pick up the ball and run with it, and you'll be out of the game. Like you'll have lost. So get that great team. Put 80% of your time into this right up front, like getting A-list players, not B, C, D, not whoever you can get. Really amazing. You can't win anywhere. You don't build a company alone as a CEO. You build a company with great people. Then take that team, go into the marketplace early, and, and with a lot of ideas, don't just pick one idea. Like if you want to transform the restaurant business, let's say, or you want to transform the fishing industry to make it more sustainable, to make it more efficient, mm. uh, to have less bycatch and pollution, go into that industry. You may have great ideas. Like you may have thought of the best way that the fishing industry can become more sustainable. But honestly, if the people running that industry don't see any benefit for them, it's going nowhere. It mm. could be the greatest idea in the world. But if they're not going to adopt it, 
because it doesn't meet whatever goals they have, you won't win. So if you want to make that industry more sustainable, you first have to figure out how to get them on board, like get them to buy into your idea. What, what are their goals? And you need to match those up. So come at them. And so many entrepreneurs in the world fall in love with their idea. This is a huge mistake. This is why I say don't have one idea, because if you fall in love with it, you end up filtering out all the negative feedback, all the warning signs that tell you this thing isn't working and you just keep going. And uh, there's a great, there's a great analogy here. It's, it's, it doesn't matter. A lot of entrepreneurs think if I just stick with this idea, if I just pound away at it, if I just never give up, I will get through, right? I will break through. Well, that isn't how the world works. It's like you're a fly smashing your head against a window. Eventually, you're going to drop on that windowsill a dead fly. You need to try and go somewhere else and find an open door, a door that's open. Because, And this is something entrepreneurs need to realize more than anything else. Nobody creates demand. No entrepreneur can create demand. You can have the best product in the world, the best idea, like I said, for the fishing industry. But if there's no demand there, you're never going to make a single sale. Like it doesn't matter. So entrepreneurs that are really good get a great team and then they go out hunting for demand. They go start to look at, like I did with my founder space, look for pockets of pent up demand that isn't being met. And when you find that demand, that's when you start trying a lot of different ideas. Like, how do we meet this demand? What is the mm-hmm. best way we can tap this demand? And once you hit it, it's like an oil wildcat or a gusher. That demand just explodes. And that's when you see these unicorns happening. That's what they're doing. So I want to give your audience out there a few examples. Like everybody thinks Google, like the most profitable company that ever existed. They had that idea from the beginning. Mm-hmm. They didn't. When Google started, the Larry Page and third Sergey Brin, the founders, thought they were doing a nonprofit, a nonprofit, ironically. Now, why would they think this? Well, because their original idea was to help academics find research papers online through a search engine. That's a very small market. And it was only later that they pivoted into generalized search. And that's what the demand exploded. Mm-hmm. You look at YouTube. I know the YouTube guys. Um, They acquired one of my companies that I founded. The YouTube guys, when they started YouTube, they actually were a video dating site. Video dating. Dating, wow. (laughs) And there was no demand. Nobody wanted to video date. Like even today, like, you know, decades later, people just don't video date. Like it's not a big thing. So, and in those days, especially, like nobody would do it. And then they discovered along the way, that they wanted to share some files with friends, video files, and their site was dying. But mm. they said, oh, we could upload the file to our site and our friends can go view it online. Boom. That link sharing, that was YouTube. All the other stuff came later that we know today. So it was just that simple idea of link sharing that nobody had done. And there's this huge demand. Everybody wanted to share these video files and there's no simple way to do it. So this uh, coming at it with a very open mind, trying lots of different things and then seeing what works and what doesn't, that is a way you will succeed as an entrepreneur. Wow. That is so counterintuitive and such brilliant advice. Spend 80% of your time building a team of people that are so much more smarter than you are. Uh, Don't fall in love or marry the idea, but be flexible and open to identifying pent-up demand and then brainstorming a plethora of different ideas that can address that demand. 
Uh, really, really great insights, man. I, I love, I, I feel like we should, we got to have you back because I think you've got so much to share on this space that would be good to have our audience really, really dig into. Uh, speaking of being able to leverage you, your team, your company as a resource, what's the best way for somebody who's out there listening and they're going, man, I'm loving what Steven's having to share with us here. How do they go about getting a hold of you and, and seeing how they can you know, work with you guys? Oh, I'm super easy to find. So just go to founderspace.com. That's it, Founderspace. And when you come, there's tons of free material, tons of videos, tons of startup kits, all the stuff to support entrepreneurs. And of all levels, it's there. If you want to get my books, Surviving a Startup, Make Elephants Fly, they're all there too. And if you want to contact me, just click that contact button, put my name in there, and it will get to me. I, I, we read every email, every single one. I'm also, I'm for all your friends out there, you know, or Instagram, LinkedIn, yeah. Facebook. I'm on every social network, so just search for Founder Space. You can find me. That is awesome. It's been such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for spending time with us, and uh, really, really looking forward to having you come back. Thank you, Ike. It's been wonderful. Awesome. Take care, guys. Bye bye. Welcome to the Thriving Advisor Show. I'm Ike Ikoku, and together with Nina Venturella, we are co-founders of the Cochinaire Institute and the Seven Figure Mentor Program. We help executives create successful transitions out of corporate life without jeopardizing their current employment and without risk to their family, finances, or future. We launch business consulting practices for our clients and use that as a vehicle to establish their personal brand, their thought leadership, and to monetize their purpose, passion, wisdom, expertise, and experience. This helps them address the problem of how to design a successful transition out of corporate life and into doing something adventurous and fulfilling that allows them to have the kind of impact, influence, and income they desire in this next chapter of their life. We believe that executives who have been thriving in the boardroom with their responsibilities to their current employer can also thrive outside of the boardroom in their post-corporate life. We know that you have relevant experience, expertise, as well as a unique message and or a passion project that can positively impact the world. Stick around to the end of the show and we'll reveal how you can be our next guest on one of the fastest growing daily inspirational podcasts on the planet in the next 15 to 20 minutes. All right, well, let's get into today's show.